Welcome to the Reframers Podcast. Arguing with friends and fam about politics is hard. New plan. Let's reframe what it means to discuss and disagree by talking and listening to each other. We're the Reframers. Hello, everybody. Welcome to the Reframers Podcast. Hi, everyone. Welcome back. We're so glad you're here. Hey, everybody. Let's get started. Let's do it. This week, we are talking about censorship. We're just going to jump, dive right in. No mucking about censorship. Let's go. Really big topic. So um, we're excited to talk about it. Zach and I, I don't think we have talked about this, at least in detail before. I have, I think I have a sense of where you're at probably, but we have not deep dove on this one. Yeah, that's right. We've, we've definitely like, it comes up in so many other areas that we've definitely hit on aspects of it, but we've never dedicated like a discussion to it. So this will be a first for us. And I don't know where, oh, I know where I stand, but I don't know where anybody else stands. So this will be new and revealing for everybody. So I hope everybody enjoys listening at home. Okay, Zach, I'm curious, like where you began here when you, uh, you said you did a lot of different kinds of research. So what was your direction there when you started looking into it? Yeah. So I feel like for me, this one was a bit of a a different approach because I did a lot of reading about more of like the philosophy of free speech. So John Stuart Mill's like harm principle and John Locke and Montesquieu and, and kind of some of these enlightenment thinkers and why they felt like freedom of speech was a necessity in a free and democratic society versus like statistics and numbers and and things like that. So that was the approach that I took. I do, I did do a little bit of research, but I just feel like jumping into a topic like censorship, it's so subjective, right? Oh, you're censoring me. But what does that mean? Is it, is it really censoring because the government's doing it or, or did your post get like a COVID flag on Instagram, right? So it can be very subjective. The standards are not clear. Um, and so I'm sure that's why this is such a complicated topic, but That's why I went more on the philosophy side of free speech rather than the like numbers and the facts side of free speech. So um, how about you, Erin? Oh, I definitely looked into a lot of the current conversation with tech companies in particular and Mm -hmm. the internet and just claims of what, you know, what the censorship is, who it happens to that kind of thing and kind of looked into that. But I actually want to go back, you know, because if you're going to talk about philosophers, right, and free speech and some of the ones that you mentioned, like John Locke in particular, was really influential for the founders. I did want to level set a little bit and think about we're talking about censorship, but to talk about censorship, you're also talking about free speech, right? So we want to like set the stage on where we stand with that when we're talking about something about censorship. So as everyone probably knows, free speech is part of the First Amendment. It's one of the five rights that's listed in the First Amendment. This is a test that you can give your friends if you're ever interested. Make people name the five rights that are listed in the First Amendment. No one probably knows. (laughs) Wait, (laughs) as the resident audience and test taker now, I want to try and see if I know any. Okay. Give me like (laughs) the first couple of words of the First Amendment. Let me get started here. Nervous now. Congress shall make no law respecting. Okay. 
is does it use the words freedom of speech respecting speech speech is one of them great uh, assembly yes sweet okay uh, <laughs> i'm nervous but i feel good doing good so far two out of five is better than it could have been uh oh my god you guys this is sad <laughs> no it's okay there's a few that are really tough so it's Speech, assembly, freedom of religion, which oh, religion and speech are big ones that people remember. Freedom of the press. And duh. then petition, right? To petition your and government. Then petition. And petition is the one that people always forget. Right. Re- uh-huh. For redress of grievances. For what? Right. It's to petition your government for redress of grievances. Right. Isn't that the. Uh, yeah. Mm-hmm. The That's ending the of the text. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I feel like you did well in uh, social studies. Who, me? probably both of you okay i'm up to speed continue freedom of speech is listen the language is just congress shall make no law abridging the freedom of speech and there is a ton of case law ton of first amendment case law about what that means about what speech is that is protected and then what it means to abridge free speech so just so everyone knows there are types of speech that are not protected under the first amendment fighting words, which is like a really weird constitutional thing is one of those, but threats for violence, incitement. Those are like words you may have heard around the threats and incitement in particular. There's case law about what those mean. So it's not just what you think a threat is, there's tests for this, or not just what you think incitement is, there's tests for that. And another thing that's really important about the First Amendment and how it works is that it only applies to the government abridging free speech. It does not apply to private companies or to individual citizens. This is about what the government can do when regulating speech. And that's because the initial clause of the First Amendment is Congress shall make no law. So that's the part that's the limiting principle there is the Bill of Rights is actually a limit on what the government can't do to its citizens rather than what Facebook or what Zach can limit Cassie from saying, like it's it's what the government can't do in respect to our natural God-given inalienable rights. Right, like this basic idea that humans are born with certain rights. It's a human rights theory. And there were founders who didn't want to add the Bill of Rights into the constitution because they thought that by listing rights, you're going to inevitably miss certain rights and limit it to a number that it not necessarily should be limited to. That was one of the debates. Yeah, I actually have a quote from James Jackson of Georgia, who says, in referring to Madison, who is commonly thought of as the author, or at least the editor of the Bill of Rights. The quote is that the gentleman, referring to Madison, endeavors to secure the liberty of the press. Pray, how is this in danger? There is no power given to Congress to regulate the subject as they can commerce, peace, or war. So his perspective was, we've written no language into the Constitution regarding limiting anything, speech, press, you know, none of that. So why do we need this explicitly stated when in the constitution itself, there is nothing that refers to press freedom? Yeah, it was an interesting debate, you know, but it was really, who was it? Was it the Federalists or the Anti-Federalists? I should know this, who really wanted the Bill of Rights. I think it was the federal, the Anti-Federalists who were all about adding a Bill of Rights. I think so. It's a little confusing because Madison and Hamilton writing to defend the thing that they didn't want because it was attached to the constitution. So it's a little confusing in that respect because mm-hmm. they, they were the authors of the bill of rights. So it, it's a little twisted in there. Mm-hmm. 
that's sort of sort of the founders. I mean, the founders really cared about free speech, right? It's one of the things protected in the Constitution. I think on a philosophical level, it's actually important to ask the question of why do we protect free speech? Like, what's the value in protecting free speech? And I have a couple values. I don't know if you, it sounds like, Zach, you maybe had a couple things on that level, too, that you were thinking about. Definitely so. The founders were very learned. They read a ton relating to this topic. And so there's a long history of you know, famous philosophers talking about why unabridged speech is a cornerstone for democracy and for a free people. That's something that the founders definitely were aware of, regardless of their positions on whether it should be included explicitly in the constitution or not. They were, I think probably, I would say, overwhelmingly in favor of free speech. Yeah, I think that's true. There were a couple sort of broad ideas that I actually, I, I took a class on the First Amendment in law school. So I learned all about this case law. Some of the themes that we talked about, about the protections for free speech, why we protect free speech. There are three things really that we focused on. One was finding the truth, because when you protect free speech, you have this sort of balance of ideas. The concept is called the marketplace of ideas. So you have these concepts out there and then they can compete with each other. And the theory is that the best idea, the most true, the one that is like going to be espoused by people is what's going to emerge on top. It's sort of like a free market idea, but with speech. That was one. Another is just general self-fulfillment, realizing one's own character and potential, being able to speak and share your thoughts and opinions is a big part of that. And then the third one is self-governance, making democracy possible with the theory that you can't actually have good democracy if you don't have the free exchange of ideas. Yeah. So all of that is super true, Aaron. And that was a lot of the things that I found, you know, when I was doing my research, I was reading people, John Stuart Mill and Thomas Jefferson and Montesquieu and Locke. And, you know, these people that were very influential and definitely two quotes I could find that really summarized it for me well. Um, the first one I'll read is from Jefferson. And it's, I think, very applicable to what you just said, that the operations of the mind must not be made subject to the coercion of the laws. The legitimate powers of government extend to such acts only as are injurious to others. But it does me no injury for my neighbor to say that there are 20 gods or no god. It neither picks my pocket or breaks my leg. And I just feel like that's so apt still. I can't believe that one dude was, he was just, Jefferson was just like a quote machine, put in a nickel and he spits out this like incredibly beautiful quote, but that's true, right? It's talking about in respect to the government regulating speech or, or not doing so that as long as what you're saying, and this goes back to your, your tests, Aaron, about threats and incitement, things like that, as long as what you're saying doesn't threaten me any harm, it, it shouldn't matter to me what somebody else says, if it's true or untrue, the government shouldn't regulate it. And the other one is more along the truth, kind of self-fulfillment side of things is by John Stuart Mill. If all mankind minus one were of one opinion, and only one person were of the contrary opinion, mankind would be no more justified in silencing that one person than he, if he had the power, would be justified in silencing mankind. And that's very much in line with like the marketplace of ideas that just because somebody has a dissenting opinion doesn't mean that they should not be allowed to speak that opinion because if everybody has the freedom to speak, whatever that person's opinion is or maybe misinterpretation of events or lies or something like that can be rebutted and rebuked and, and argued against and that person can be made a fool or be made 
you know, to look ignorant and, and then discredited, right? So that's that marketplace of ideas thing really coming into effect in terms of how we treat speech. Yeah, and just so everyone knows, in the US, we're very protective of speech, more so than other countries, even other democratic countries. So the way our case law has developed, there's a few cases here and there that like limit speech, but almost all of them expand speech. So as a couple examples, a lot of these cases kind of happened around the 1970s. Well, we really started to get more case law around like World War II. And then during the 1970s, during the Vietnam War, which is when like people are speaking a lot, especially against the government. And so there were cases. So one, this is a really famous case. It's Cohen versus California. It was in 1971. And it was a guy who wore a jacket that said F the draft to a courthouse. People call this like the F the draft case too. We're going to have to censor here our our own (laughs) cuss words. So, but it's really interesting because one of the things the court said was that, yeah, this is you know, really aggressive speech. And we don't think about that now, maybe quite as much, but like back in the seventies, you know, you don't wear a jacket that says a cuss word into a courthouse. It just, you know, that really wasn't okay. But the court said, well, even using a cuss word emotes something and it emotes something different than if you're not using it. And so maybe it is something that is like aggressive, but we're we are going to be champing on speech if we tell this person they can't do it because they're clearly trying to give a political message. So that was an interesting case. And then one more I wanted to mention just to illustrate how far we go as far as protecting speech. So this is a case called the National Socialist Party of America versus the Village of Skokie. And if you don't know, the National Socialist Party of America is the Nazi party. And this party had organize a demonstration in a Jewish village specifically to, to like terrorize these people, right? Like they weren't doing anything violent, but they're wearing their Nazi paraphernalia walking down this street. And they went to a town that was primarily Jewish. And the court ruled in this case, this was in 1977, that that was protected speech, even though they, they felt a little threatened, but there wasn't like violence. There wasn't other kinds of things behind it. And so the court protected it. So that's really how far we go in our case law, our jurisprudence to protect free speech in the United States. And I think that because of that, because this is just our perception of where our rights are when it comes to free speech, when we see something that is censorship, so particularly online, we have a very aggressive reaction to it just because of the, like what we're used to as far as free speech goes. And that's something that I distinguished in my research for this week's episode and just reading, honestly, was I kind of broke it down into two categories of like the First Amendment, which is actual government, you know, violations of people's free speech versus like the spirit of the First Amendment. That's kind of what I called it, just because I feel like you need both to be in a like healthy, functional, democratic society where great if the government's not violating people's First Amendment right that's awesome. But if we as a society have gotten to the point where we are looking for tech companies and we're silencing each other, you know, and, and canceling each other, that's kind of like a more of a spirit of the first amendment thing. You know, it's not against the law, like, like we said in the, in the top of this, that Facebook and Twitter and whoever can say what they want or put in policies that they want as they see fit, they're private companies, they can do that. But I feel like in order to foster like a good, healthy democracy, like the spirit of the First Amendment should be kept alive also. And that's, I see, is more of 
in danger today than actual government side of things. But that's, I think, probably going to be maybe a segue into our discussion this week. Uh, cancel culture. Are we going to talk about cancel culture today? Because that's that's a whole other bag. I think we might touch on it a little bit, but I, you know, when I think what I was thinking about in terms of like censorship is specifically like internet, right? Like this is where it is, right? This is where the discussion is. It's not really, it's not quite the same as cancel culture because cancel culture is basically a huge group of people saying like, we don't agree with what this person has said, whether you agree with the group of people or not. Right. And then, but when you're talking about internet companies specifically, it's Facebook, Twitter, Google, and uh, what Instagram and maybe TikTok. There, these are companies that are making editorial decisions on like what content they want to allow on their platforms, and that's a little bit different, I think, than cancel culture. Yeah, I just brought that up as like an example of like an individual talking about or trying to silence another individual as it relates. But I, I totally agree with you, Aaron. And I heard you use the word editorial. Maybe that's a nice time to introduce Section 230. I want to back up a little bit first. Before we get to Section 230, I want to talk about these tech companies and kind of the development of where, how we got to where we are right now. So especially if you're talking about like say Twitter and Facebook, these are really the big platforms of speech. And for a really long time, I think this is probably a little bit less true now, they very much were, were tech companies, were not media companies. And I think that's actually still kind of like the line, but it's very clear that there's media moving on these platforms, right? Like that's what they're built for, even if it's like engineers and people who are working on the tech side of it, because it is a tech company, but it's working in this space where there is a lot of speech, there's a lot of media. But if you look back to when they started, these are kind of these behemoth companies that in a way spun to a point where I think they did start to be used in a way that their founders didn't necessarily expect. And it's like everyone had to catch up to what they became. And for a really long time, and I think we forget this, Facebook and Twitter in particular really avoided doing anything to censor or even just like edit their platforms, edit any of the things that were posted on their platforms. They really, really, really didn't want to get involved in that to the point where they had content moderation. And this has always been a thing where there are certain things that you can't post on these platforms that you've never been able to post on them. So one of those things is say anything pornographic. And even that there's like issues of what you classify as pornographic, like breastfeeding, for instance, was like a big issue when it first came up, people trying to like promote breastfeeding and getting tagged as like a pornographic image. But there are things that are clearly like pornographic that you probably don't want on these sites, right? Like that's not what they're designed for. Related to that, really graphic violence was another one that was like a big issue. Facebook and Twitter, they have content moderators that are not just algorithms. Like these are individual people. They're sourced generally from third parties. And most of them are not even in the United States. And they review content based on policies that these companies have. And so they have these like list of policies and they just go through all of this marked content and decide if it's going to get removed or not. This started with the idea of just keeping stuff off these platforms, like really shouldn't be on the platforms because they're obscene or they're, you know, violent in a way that is not okay. But then 
as they started to be used for different things, their news got shared on the platform. So this really happened with like the Boston Marathon bombing. There were pictures that were graphic, that were like violent, um, but they were being shared on platforms and Facebook specifically. And it's news and they didn't want to take those down. And so you make that decision and it sort of tumbles from there of, okay, well not, now what do we decide? How do we decide what's okay and what's not? So I think that like, it's helpful to keep in mind that there's always been this content moderation and it's been this progression over time where it was really about keeping the platforms quote clean and then trying to avoid anything political until it got to a point where it was actually, they made a calculus where the bigger risk for them was actually not to get involved. So I just think that's helpful to have as background when you're talking about censorship with specifically these big tech companies. Yeah, that's a good background to have. The big thing in this space is Section 230 of the Communications Decency Act, which kind of outlines what really any any media companies can do uh, and what they can and can't allow and in terms of what they're on the hook for in terms of liability-wise. And the bit of the text says, to restrict access or availability of material that the provider or user considers to be obscene, lewd, I don't even know what this word is, lascivious. I think it's lavishious. I, I know that that's like a, that's a legal term and it's a lavishious. criminal law thing. Mm-hmm. Okay. Filthy, excessively violent, harassing, or otherwise objectionable, whether or not such material is constitutionally project, protected. The Communications Decency Act was enacted, let's see, a short time after 1996 when the web was like kind of new. Those are the the categories of things that are not to be allowed on these sites. And the big thing here is publisher versus platform. So if I'm talking on the telephone and I make a threat to somebody over the phone, Verizon and wireless isn't on, on the hook for that. Like they have no legal obligation because I made a threat. And so they are a, a platform much in the way that Facebook and Twitter and everything is. But as soon as you start editing the content, then you open yourself up to become more of a publisher, right? If the New York times or um, you know, a news outlet or something like that says something and they make a threat or they allow for some of these categories to be published on their site that they have control over the content, then they are liable to do uh, legally for those things. And so that's where I think a lot of the stickiness is for these tech companies. I don't envy them, even though I, I disagree with their decisions a lot of the times. I don't envy them because they do have to try to find a balance between allowing the speech that their users want on their platforms while also not allowing the kinds of speech that would make them legally liable for these things under under the Communications Decency Act. It's super complicated, super messy, and more and more and more, the government is looking to step in and regulate portions of these tech companies in terms of what they're allowed to do. It's true. Part of the Communications Decency Act has already been struck down by the Supreme Court. There were anti-indecency provisions to it. And in a case called um, Reno versus the ACLU, the Supreme Court said that those provisions couldn't be uh, against free speech. The reason Section 230 has so much attention right now is particularly because of Trump. And he like attacked Section 230, basically saying like, this is what's allowing all of these companies to censor. And we have to get rid of it. Unclear exactly 
what would happen if you just repealed Section 230 with these platforms? Because if they were suddenly liable for everything anyone said on their platforms, I mean, I think that they would like just go under, right? Like, what do you do if you can't, your, your, your company actually can't work if you just repeal Section 230? It's a super nuanced law and it is complicated. And it's really, I think that a lot of the rhetoric around it has simplified it to be sort of this demonizing, oh, this is a bad thing that, you know, we need to get rid of so that companies can't censor. But it's, it, parts of it are great, you know, in that it allows companies to remove like a bullying language and bullying on the internet, online harassment is a huge issue, right? Like we know this. And so there's unintended consequences of just like messing with it. And it needs to be really carefully considered. Yeah. I mean, there's, that's for sure. There's unintended consequences for everything, but this one, it feels like because the internet is so pervasive, it's worldwide, it's constant. It never sleeps that there's the, the consequences are happening so fast. It's like AI learning at a hyperspeed rate because there's so many users. There's so many times where, you know, back in the caveman days, you had two people and one of them's like, hey, I don't like the way that you're cutting up that firewood or something. And then the other caveman's like, hey, that's mean. Like, don't say that about me. Like, it's one instance. It's going to take millions of years before you end up with a situation where you have something objectionable coming up when there's 10 people on the planet, but when you have these platforms that have millions or billions of users billions in Facebook cases, mm -hmm. you have so many probably objectionable things happening every day that they do have to really walk a fine line. That's why I say, I don't, I don't envy them, even though I think it's, there's examples of things that are not good policy on their end. They're free to do it, even though I disagree, but it's a, it's a, I imagine it's a very difficult job. Yeah. And I mean, to go to what you were talking about, Cass, about 20, 2016, one of the big issues that came, I think that 2016 changed a lot for the tech companies. It really was when I think they realized they had to start making some content decisions, whether you agree with what they're doing or not, that, that they were so criticized after 2016, at the 2016 election. There's a couple of reasons for that. One, there was the Cambridge Analytica incident. And if you haven't heard of this, what happened was Cambridge Analytica's marketing company, and it was um, providing profile information about voters to the Trump campaign because they had hired it to do so. But they were doing it out of this data that Facebook had collected and provided to it. So they had all of this Facebook information, which is a lot of personal information about yourself, it is and creating voter profiles and then giving those profiles to the Trump campaign. Stephen Bannon, was, he, who is a Trump aide, was on the board of Cambridge Analytica, and it just got really messy with everything that was going on there. And they were, I mean, Facebook was fined, five, I think, $5 billion by the FTC because of their privacy practices for violating users' privacy. And so this was like one of the things that happened in 2016 that was a really big deal that kind of shone a light on um, Facebook in particular, but also these other companies and what their influence was. So I think that was one thing. And then the other thing was these sort of clickbaity type articles that got spread all across these platforms. So one was that, that got a lot of attention was that the Pope had endorsed Trump and not uh, Clinton. I don't think the, the Pope endorsed anybody, right? But that was one that got spread all over the place and it was untrue. And so 
incidents like that and the effects of them really made tech companies have to take, they, they were getting criticism from literally the entire world. And they really had to take a look at like, well, what are we allowing on our platforms? And what do we need to do to start changing this? Like you look like really concentrated and I'm wondering what you're thinking. I just looked up to see, cause I, I don't, I didn't really remember that, but no, the Pope did not endorse Trump. So I was just checking to see, I didn't remember but that. Why does that make me laugh so much? Just the idea of the Pope being like, you know what I think you guys should do? You're yeah. not even my people. I mean, I guess, <laughs> I guess all the Catholics are the Pope's people, but still just being like, you guys should vote for Trump. It, it makes me laugh. It feels like a New Yorker cartoon. Yeah, right. a little bit. Yeah. Anyway. The cost of inaction suddenly became greater than the cost of action. So like I said, the tech companies were so low to get involved in this, but then they're getting all this criticism and they were starting to have like problems with users as well. So, and that's a thing that I think, I don't know that we forget, but we maybe don't focus on enough is that these are companies who are concerned about their bottom line. They're making money for shareholders. And so they have different interests than the government or than private citizens. And that's like a backdrop that we need to be aware of when we're talking about this kind of stuff. That all that, that foundation you've laid is really true. But I think that from the conservative, you know, Republican side of, of the picture, again, not that I think I'm smart enough to speak for that whole side of things, because it's obviously vast. But I think in, in the 2016 days, it almost feels like, man, we were so naive back then. Um, in the 2016 days, I remember there being a big push to be like, well, what are the algorithms? Like, what are you promoting? What's the transparency? Like, that was the big push back in those days to try to see or get a sense of what are the rules that we're all playing by? Because there was like, um, oh, it happened on YouTube. There was Adpocalypse, right? Where I remember listening to people back in the day and they had, they were like, man, our, our viewership totally got slashed. Our viewership got totally cut in half. A ton of my videos have been demonetized. I've lost like 70% of my revenue because of YouTube changing the algorithm. And it impacted a lot of people in the conservative space pretty harshly. Um, so that was the big call back in the day was like, what, what rules are we playing by? Because it seems like the rules are changing and it's negatively affecting conservatives. You say this is a platform for free speech, but you won't let us see what the algorithms are. And I feel like that has recently changed, not recently maybe, but over the course of the Trump presidency, the focus shifted a lot to being, we need to regulate the internet. We need to regulate these, these tech companies because of misinformation, because you're censoring people unevenly or unfairly. And that's where I feel like it, it kind of stands now. There's plenty of anecdotal things to point to on the conservative side of things to say, there's a double standard being applied here. And it's not even. And that's where I think a lot of people point to, and it gets a lot of noise. Honestly, I, the one I always go to is like Kathy Griffin literally had Donald Trump like decapitated, like not really, but made a doll of him and decapitated him. And that was like allowed to be up. And somehow that wasn't violent. I mean, he's, he was the president of the United States at the time or president elect maybe. And like, that was like, Oh, that's fine. But then you have posts from conservatives and they're talking about you know, I, I can't think of a good comparison, but like, just really like, how, how is that? Okay. You're making a death threat against the president effectually. And 
and that is allowed to remain up. So didn't that eventually, didn't she eventually get um, that post got taken down though? I don't know. Honestly, it, I feel like it was, it was four years ago. So I don't know, but I just remember that being like a big one at the time. And the, the, the biggest one I can point to now is like Donald Trump is kicked off of all of these platforms. Like the former president of the United States is kicked off of Twitter and YouTube and, and all these, you know, Facebook, he cannot post there. In fact, even after the election, um, his daughter was hosting an interview with him and that got taken down and it was her account. But meanwhile, the Taliban still has a presence on Twitter. I don't know how to interpret that being on the conservative side of the aisle in a way that's not biased against conservatives like that. That doesn't make sense to me. Like the Taliban are some of the worst people on the planet, as we've seen in, in recent weeks. And they have a Twitter account. How is that? OK, so. OK, uh, I'm so glad you brought this up. This is something that I like dove deep into. So, okay. because I wanted to know, I, and so what I looked at, I was like, it, are, are, are these policies being applied on an ideological level? For one, it is true that conservatives think that's true. So just to put that out there, there's a, there's a great Pew Research poll, and it's not even just Republicans. Most Americans think social media sites censor political viewpoints, but the difference between how Republicans and Democrats think about this is kind of nuts. So 69% of Republicans um, and Republican leaners say that major technology companies generally support the views of liberals over conservatives, compared with only 25% of Democrats wow. and Democrat leaners. Like Democrats don't have this perception. And also fully 73% of Democrats say they strongly or somewhat approve of social media companies labeling posts on their platforms from elective officials as inaccurate, inaccurate or misleading. So to be clear, this is not removing posts, but labeling them. Mm -hmm. On the other hand, 71% of Republicans say they at least somewhat disapprove of this practice. So like we're super divided on social media and there's very much a perception, particularly not even particularly, there is a perception among Republicans that they are censored way more than Democrats are. I did look into this and I found four or five different studies about this that I thought were super interesting. And most of them, not even most, all of them, and I looked for, for a variety of sources said, mm -hmm conservatives dominate social media posts from conservatives are the most popular they're the most followed they have the most like retweets or shares this is a study from politico who worked with researchers from the institute for strategic dialogue which is a london-based non-partisan think tank and it tracks extremism online and they analyzed two million social media posts across facebook instagram twitter and message boards on reddit and 4chan this is around last summer that they did this study. Users shared the most viral right-wing content 10 times more often than liberal posts. And that was specifically with regard to the Black Lives Matter movement. And people also claimed, also shared claims of voter fraud twice as often as liberal posts that were in the opposite direction. So like, there's a lot of content right now on these, these media platforms that supports conservative ideology. I have another statistic I want to share just because I think it is really compelling. This is from a study for, they studied January 1st, 2020 through election day. So this is election year last year. And they looked at the most engaged with posts 
on um, social media. So there were three conservative pages, Fox News, Breitbart, and The Daily Caller. There were 839 million interactions generated just from those three pages. From the next top 10, seven mainstream media pages, so it's CNN, ABC, BBC, NBC, NPR, Now This, and The New York Times are seven of the top 10. There were 821 million total. So there's more, there's millions more being shared on these conservative platforms than there are on the liberal platforms. And they've also done studies about removing content. This is from a uh, New York University study that came out in February 2021. So it's really recent. And one of the things that it was saying is that, and I think this goes along with how much is out there in terms of conservative social media posting, there's more of it. And so mm -hmm. it gets censored more often, quote, censored more often. And there's also an argument that combing out these, some of the things that social media platforms do, quote, censor, things like threats, incitement to violence, like those sorts of things, they get censored more because the right spreads more content that violates the platform rules than the left does. So they get censored more often because they're sharing content that violates the plat platform rules more often. And I think you can see this when you're talking about just, for example, say Trump, the reason that he got banned was for inciting violence and questioning, basically questioning the, uh, the integrity of democracy in terms of his voter fraud claims. There's a lot there you need to respond to. So go ahead. All right. So, you know, your, your basic mathematics on that checks out, right? If you have a larger sized pie, right? a larger sample size, fortunately, you're likely to have more violations simply by volume. So that makes sense to me that if conservatives are posting, I don't remember the number you said, but if they're posting, let's say five times more content than liberals are on, on the internet, then just sheer volume, you know, you're going to have more things that are going to be censored. Now, I do understand, you know, the argument is, well, Trump got banned because he violated terms of service. That's, that's the safety net in which all tech companies have to protect themselves is terms of service. But however, I don't, I don't get, it doesn't square up to me that you could have Donald Trump violating terms of service in that way and, and saying, okay, great. He's banned, but not the Taliban. Like, are you kidding me? Like they're a legitimate terror or terrorist organization. Like they literally throw gay people off roofs and, rape women and enslaved children like they are a terrorist organization like donald trump said like go to the capitol and like peaceably and patriotically like protest the election effed like from the president of the united states super wrong but he's not raping anybody or killing people it that doesn't square up to me so yeah Cass, go ahead i was just gonna say that's a really interesting point. I don't, I'm not super active on Twitter. I don't follow at the Taliban. Like how, what are the stats behind? Like, do people hashtag Taliban? Are there just people that are known to be associates of the, like, how does, where, where's, right. where's that coming from? I'm just kind of wondering, cause he's like one guy and, and it's like maybe easier to, do you, does my question make sense? Like, how do you enforce it? Well, in I mean, Facebook, I think, sorry, go ahead. No, I just, I think that there's like known people, like we, the United States is in communication with whoever is leading that group of 
terrorists because of the current situation that we're in. You know, we're recording this August 25th right now. So we know the names of several of their, you know, leading people and they have Twitter accounts, like they're giving press conferences and stuff like that. So I, I don't see how you square that circle. Okay. Well, I mean, Facebook has banned people who are quote more left-leaning like Louis Farrakhan. I don't, I don't think I pronounced that right. Louis Farrakhan. Yeah. Thank you. He, you know, was a anti-Semitic person. So I don't think that it's true to say like, that's not, and that there's no censorship on the other side for one. And I'm not, I don't know that like, it's a good idea. Not the, the Taliban probably should be banned from Twitter. Right. Like I think that they should be, but I don't think that that is enough to say, because Trump was banned and they're not, there's clearly like, that's, that's one comparison. I don't, when you're looking at all of the, the data on the rest of it, I don't think that that is like a fair, that's a whataboutism issue. Sure. I understand. I, I think that to me, that's the most glaring issue that that's relatable today. But the reason why I think people on the right do have the perception that they are censored more is uh, there's a, a study by the Media Research Center that finds that four years ago, PolitiFact, uh, who's a fact-checking organization, offered 52 fact checks with a truth-a-meter ruling of Donald Trump in his first hundred days, while the same period this year, PolitiFact offered just 13 fact checks on President Biden. So that comes out to eight times more fact checks Trump compared to Biden in the same time span as well as uh, another study that found that only 7% of reporters in various media outlets self-identify as Republican. So I think you, you have this, you know, you have anecdotal things that I know don't make up the whole picture, but you also have studies that are showing that you are having a very left bias in these institutions. And so that coupled with the fact that there is conservative censorship creates this perception. And I I don't think that that's unwarranted. Okay. So in terms of there being more media people who are Democrat than Republican, the biggest media, the, the most viewed media is Fox News. So like whether there are more individual journalists who are liberal as opposed to conservative, I don't think that that necessarily matters because it's what, like, what is the biggest news that people are listening to? And it's Fox News. And it's, so I don't think that that like necessarily matters. You have representation on the media level from these organizations. And that's like a concept that I feel like conservatives generally just disagree with or don't like, but it's like, you're the underdogs in everything. But when you're talking about media, like your media outlets are the most popular outlets. That's they get the most like listens, more people pay attention to them than pay attention to the liberal outlets. You have more viewers. So I just don't think it's true that there's this like, over a little minority that's getting crushed by media. But going back to where we started this discussion, like the philosophies of free speech, just because there's more of us doesn't mean it's okay to censor us or, or pull stuff down. Like, I mean, there's, there's plenty of examples of people that aren't even right-wing. This is potentially controversial. I mean, not even potentially, just is controversial. But you have Twitter that has banned people for saying things against trans women in women's sports. Olympic gold medalists have spoken out against that and they've been given suspensions or bans because that goes against terms of service. I think that there's some leaps that are happening in terms of the media approach to how they are monitoring or editing or screening their content 
that has an ideological bent to it rather than strictly just, oh, you're conservative, therefore you're censored. Like, I don't think it's that cut and dry. I think that there's some nuance to it. And that's, I don't think that that's necessarily a conservative position. Like she's an Olympic women's athlete. Like, I don't know her political stance, but she was against that particular thing. And she got slapped with the suspension on that. I, I don't know. I see that the left used to be the party of free speech. Like the left used to be the party that was, well, you know, ACLU will stick up for your right to say things. I think that that trial you spoke about in the opening about the American Socialists, you know, Workers Party, I think the ACLU was involved in that, you know, yes, defending the, the free speech. Yeah. So I, I just think it's it's interesting now that that there's, from my perspective, that seems to be a bit of change where you do have a lot of suggestions from the left of, well, the right spread mis misinformation about the 2020 election. And so they need to be, you know, kicked off of Twitter or banned or whatever. Like Project Veritas is a reporting agency that is not on Twitter. Like their Twitter accounts and YouTube accounts have been deactivated. They're a news outlet. Like they, they've broken legitimate news stories and yet they're shut down because they're not mainstream news or whatever. So I get what you're saying that, yeah, we're not the underdog all the time. Like, I think that the right does like to play that trope up, but free speech is free speech. Like just because the right has the most watched cable network or, you know, some of the biggest podcasts or something like that doesn't mean that that makes it okay to infringe on those ideas. Yeah. And I don't think that it is okay to infringe on the ideas. I just, I think that there's a difference between posting something that's controversial and something that is like dangerous, honestly. And that's what I think Trump did when this, I'm using Trump as my example, you know, when he was posting so much about election fraud, he said in the summer before the election, if I don't win, it's because there was election fraud. I mean, he set it up and Twitter and Facebook had policies. They, he, he created the policies basically that they could use to ban him by telling everyone exactly what he was going to do. And I think it is naive to think that Trump didn't have an influence on what happened on January 6th. There were posts from his posts parsing his words to look into, okay, he wants us to use force here. We're doing violence. There were or like groups organizing to do not necessarily like the specific insurrection, but to bring their weapons to Washington, DC. I mean, like this is, there's real effects for this too. And I think that it's worthwhile to think about that. And this kind of goes back to the, the content moderation of like online bullying or something like that. You know, when we just leave this stuff that can be really dangerous online and it has these real world effects. Like, I think it's worthwhile to think about that more carefully. And I think getting Trump off of Twitter, like was really helpful in terms of like, honestly, like protecting democracy because of the stuff that he was saying to challenge the election. And there are so many people who listen and believe all of those things. If you look at the percentages of Republicans who didn't believe that the election was decided fairly, like that there was so much election fraud, it was more than half at various points in time. And like, that is dangerous. But it's like, that is actually dangerous for democracy. For the record, I don't think the tech companies are doing this perfectly. Like, I really don't. And I am also in favor of regulation on this. And I actually want to talk to you about regulation because I feel like it is interesting with free market stuff to talk about regulation on companies. Mm -hmm. But I, you know, just to like, I don't think they're doing it perfectly, but I don't think the answer is to do nothing. Like it, it's just not, it's not working. 
And I think that you can make an argument that the marketplace of ideas by shutting down these ideas is working. I mean, it, it doesn't, a marketplace of ideas doesn't mean that everyone's idea is going to have the, the highest ratings, right? Like, in fact, it's supposed to not, it's, we talk about it and the best ideas are the ones that are supposed to filter up. And if it's a terrible idea or idea that's going to hurt somebody, it gets filtered down. Like that's kind of the concept. Same with like free market businesses, right? You're a better business. You're going to make more money. You're a worse business. You make less money. Yeah. But by kicking somebody off the platform, you're not allowing them to speak. They don't have that opportunity. So you are shutting down the marketplace of ideas because that person doesn't, Twitter is the public square. We don't go out and stand in the middle of, you know, Main Street and like stand on a soapbox and talk anymore. Like Twitter, the, the internet is where that happens. So if you deplatform somebody, they don't have that opportunity for their ideas to get voted up or down or, or anything. So I agree with you. I don't think that they are doing it perfectly. I also don't think that doing nothing is the answer either. Like I, I do think that there should be something there, but I think as my stance has been for some time now, this, the rules should be applied evenly. And I feel like they're not. So that's kind of where I stand. I feel like your point on about Trump is taken. Like I understand where you're coming from about like protecting democracy and stuff like that. But I think that there are plenty of other things that I don't see the, re the reasoning except for the ideology. I, I'm with you on the Trump, you know, ban, but in terms of some of the other things, I don't see the defense there. I don't get the rationale behind limiting if they're not threatening violence. Like threatening violence is always fine. Like that's obviously limit that. But if it's an ideological thing, like why is that being censored? I guess I just wonder about the the actual ideological thing. You know, I think that there's a lot of you can pull like sort of these individual things out. But when I look at these studies and all of the posts and shares on social media and how it is, there's just way more in the conservative bent, then I, it's, it's hard for me to think, oh, there's such a bias against conservatives when conservatives are actually driving a lot of social media when their posts are the most popular and the most viewed. It's not in these companies' interests to design a service that only Democrats want to use, right? Like they're a company to make money. And if they're just censoring everyone who's conservative, people aren't going to use them. I don't think that there's, the platforms also really want the appearance of neutrality, even if they're not doing it like great. That is something that I think they actually are striving for. They don't want to be seen as just just liberal or just conservative. They're not really going to be seen as just conservative, like, cause they're just not being criticized for that. But I think that they are like actually really trying to make sure that they're not on that bent. And it's really interesting because in a way these companies are more responsive to public pressure than even arguably Congress is. I think that there is an evening out here of well, we're doing no content moderation. Now we have to take sort of an extreme step. And it was an extreme step to ban Trump, right? Like that was a big deal. Yeah. And then figuring out like where they filter down from there. And I think that's where we can actually get involved, hopefully with like regulations of what makes sense. I have a question. Yeah. Zach, you said something about the public square and you were talking about how people don't go to the square anymore and 
get on their soapbox and voice their opinion or their dissent or whatever it is, as often as they do um, take to Twitter or Facebook, which I would agree with. So I guess I was thinking if Twitter and Facebook and these social companies are the new public square, then who mans the square? Because even if they were, even if we did still go to Main Street in our respective towns, um, there are rules in our respective town that we are expected to adhere to, right? Like there are certain things you can't do. You can't bring weapons. You can't yell fire. Like there are going to be certain rules in your town. And I guess I'm just thinking Facebook and Twitter and all these other companies, like they should, shouldn't they have like the same freedom as like an individual town to make their own rules about how they want people to behave in their town and how they want people to treat each other and what kinds of, you know, things they should or shouldn't be allowed to say. And both of you are saying such interesting things, really, really thought provoking every time I'm nodding the whole time, but I'm just kind of thinking like, okay, so where does it go from there? Like Twitter is allowed to ban people based on Mm -hmm. their rules that they've come up with that they agree with that like Aaron said keep people on their platform because that's they're a business and the best ideas the the things that make people want to stay on their platform are going to rise to the top right so are you are you Zach like in disagreement with that no I think I try to be consistent you know in in all things and I think your Twitter, your Facebook, you do have the right to, you know, as a public, I'm sorry, as a private business, you have the right to implement whatever rules you wish, you know, like Aaron says, and, and I am in hundred percent agreement with Aaron, like they are profit driven entities. And so they do have a vested interest in driving as many users to sell our data without our knowledge to their site as possible. I totally think that they, they can do those rules as, as they see fit. And I think it's interesting phenomenon because what you have in response in the recent years to the perceived censorship of conservatives, I'll say, because I, I agree. And that's why I looked at a lot of the philosophical stuff, because I feel like it's impossible to prove this definitively one way or the other. I just can't do it. There's too many use cases. In response to the perceived censorship, you have the right starting to create its own platforms. You have uh, you know, the most famous one probably being Parler that was created as a, you know, right response to Twitter. There's also, you know, like a a right comparison of YouTube and all these things. And so we said, I'm I'm speaking, we as the conservative, you know, Republican side of things said, well, if we're going to be censored on your platforms, we're going to create our own platforms. Like you said, they they said, here are the rules, you're banning Donald Trump, we're going to create our own, you know, we're going to take our marbles and we're going to go play somewhere else. And so they did that. And then Amazon shut down Parler, took it off. And I think it's it's been reinstated since then. But I just see that as being like, well, we did try to, to do that where we somebody spent a ton of money and invested a ton of time and capital in creating a, a comparative space. And then that got taken down. I know the reason is because, well, a lot of people were, you know, the claim was using it to plan the insurrection. And I totally get that. But that to me is a little indicative of fine, we won't play on your platform anymore because you have your rules. So we're going to create our own, but then that is, is revoked too. So it, it's a bit of a, a challenge for me because I feel like, well, then you just don't want 
the conservative Twitter to exist at all. If you're saying that people, oh yeah, like people were, yeah, that's not fair that it was taken down, but they were trying to plan an insurrection, but it's still not fair that it was taken down. And then earlier in this say that you don't think anybody like the Taliban should have a platform or to speak. Like, aren't those the same things? You're like, free speech should exist, but also anyone who's saying bad things shouldn't be able to say it. No, because it would be as if like YouTube stopped existing. Like they, they didn't just like take down those users, which I think I, I think my standard on this is is the same across the board. Like if you're threatening violence or if you're aiding and abetting, you know, planning violence, anything like that, like that shouldn't be allowed, right? It, it's bordering on criminal activity. Like that's not okay. You know, probably more users on Parler that weren't threatening violence or planning to threaten violence or anything like that. But they said, Mm-mm, you as a whole entire like application are shut down and removed and inaccessible. So say if I had a parlor account or something like that, I just use it because that's the place that I could follow Donald Trump or Rick Grinnell or whoever, right? Some Somebody who's on there that, that doesn't have a Twitter presence, that's where I want to go because I don't want to give Twitter my money. I was on there and one day I log in and it's like, I can't access it because the entire service is disabled. So that's, that's where I, I think is more of an issue because if there was instances of violence, which I think there was, then why not just deactivate those accounts, remove those accounts, you know, what have you, rather than, oh, this is where the right-wing response to Twitter is. We're just going to remove that for like four months or something. So you're taking issue with the Apple store or the, I don't know how Amazon would censor this. I don't understand their level of involvement, but. It was, taking- I think, I think the Parler app was hosted on Amazon's web service, which is like their server farm. I think Amazon is, I mean, Amazon has everybody's like remote cloud-based stuff. Amazon? And so I thought it was Apple who took it off the app store. It it, it, it was across the board. Like Apple okay. did it like, and Google did it like everybody did it, but I think it was, it, I could be mistaken, but I think Amazon was the one that actually like locked it on the web store side of things. And then these other companies also said, we're not going to allow this to be downloaded anymore. If you had the app, you couldn't use it but you also couldn't get the app if you didn't have it. Okay, I have a question about this. And like, I'm seriously just interested. So I, I, like, I don't think that's okay either, actually. And I think one of the problems with these companies is that they're like too big. This is very common, like opinion mm-hmm. of a more liberal person. I see the drive for regulation of these tech companies from conservatives and Republicans. And it seems really inconsistent and depending on who it's coming from and how strong they've been in the past, like hypocritical when you're so about deregulation, but when it's something that you perceive is not helping you as a party, you now want regulation. It's really hard for me to take that at like face value and, and think there's any like integrity to that. So what, what do you think about that? I 100% agree. A lot of conservatives love Ted Cruz. And, and I think I agree with him on, on a lot of stuff. But he's been one of the more vocal people in, in the Senate that have have spoken in favor of regulating tech companies. And I don't agree with that. I think these are the rules. We live in a society where you have private institutions. As a general principle, I'm not in favor of expanding government power into areas it doesn't belong government is already involved in every single pie there is. And so I don't think that giving government the ability to regulate what the tech companies can or can't allow on their platforms is going to fix anything. I feel like the biggest thing is 
is from the Federalist Papers, right? If men were angels, but like they're not. Like the people that staff the halls of government are the same people that are, are as you and me, right? They just, instead of working for you know, a law firm and a tech company, are working for the state. So I don't think that putting them in charge is going to fix anything. In fact, I think it'll probably make things worse. I think the answer to me would be if you're going to have your rules that people don't like for Twitter, then you have to allow Parler and let and let the the public square work out in that way. Twitter can do what it wants, but Parler should be allowed to do what it wants as well. I don't think putting the government in charge of of any of these types of things is going to fix or make it better. I think it's just going to make it worse and then you have government bias coming in and potential for discrimination. Like I just think it it would really muddy the waters. And I agree it's hypocritical. Like I I I'm not going to skirt around that. Like I don't like that that some of the foremost air quotes conservatives who are for free market are out there saying that we need to regulate these these tech companies. I think it comes from both sides for different reasons. I think from the right, the right comes at it and says, we should regulate these tech companies because they're treating people unfairly and that's discriminatory. And then you have people on the left that come at it and say, well, the right has such a huge presence that we need to stop the spread of disinformation and misinformation, so we need to regulate it. So I feel like both sides are using the internet as the huge free speech engine that it is to try to get their hands in the tech company pie. And I'm not for that. That's interesting. That's not what I would have guessed. Just talking about section 230 and everything, because, and I don't hear, I just don't hear that very much from people who are conservative. You know, they're not very consistent. And when it comes to this, it's like this just anger at the tech companies and, and this feeling of like, this is just so, so unfair. None of our voices are heard. And like, I think I've made clear, I disagree with that. I don't think that's true. I think the voices are very much heard on the tech companies. I don't know how much of a bias there is or not. Like I looked up the things that I could look up from the data that we currently have. And it doesn't look to me like there is some sort of animus bias, but I'm not going to rule out that there's like subtle bias going on. I mean, like, I don't think that you can discount the population of the employees at these companies, right? Like they're based in Silicon Valley and they are majority liberal. Like, you know, it's hard to think that that doesn't have some sort of an effect, even if they're really trying for like neutrality. You know, for me, I want actually like more regulation than you want, which isn't that surprising because I, I'm, I'm not like afraid of the government getting involved in some of these things. I don't know if they do everything perfectly, but I think that there could be some value, particularly in transparency. I don't know that the government needs to go in and be like, you're doing censorship. Like, we're going to help you do censorship on this or like help you figure out which post to remove or anything like that. It's more when you remove a post or when you tag a post, like say why, you know, make this, make these policies, these internal content policies more transparent. And so, and if they did that and then also shared data on, you know, what they take off and what they don't. Cause right now there is actually not in the, the companies keep that data internal. So you can do your own study on it if you're going to like research it, but you don't have the like company's data on it and that's their right. Like they can keep it. But I yeah. think if you encourage companies to share the data so that independent third parties can actually review it and help monitor it, you know, just help, help get, just give data to them to say, Oh, we looked at all of this and you do you know, take these posts more off more often than these ones. I think that would be helpful. And that'd be something that they could, they could do. And then having that transparency 
on how they're actually implementing the internal policies that they have, I think that could be really helpful too. And so that is technically like regulation, but it's not like the government going in and making rules for the tech companies on exactly how they do things. It's just kind of peeling back the layer. And in general, like mm-hmm. I'm in favor of that kind of thing for like privacy, different topic, you know, but it's, it's still like regulating how the tech companies are like using information because they do have huge influence. I think it's worthwhile to, to have some oversight over that. I don't disagree with the sentiment for sure. You know, I think I think in an ideal world, they would be transparent about what they're flagging, why they're flagging it. I think that we live in a world that's too, I hate to say it, but too politically correct to give like a fair and honest answer as to why they're censoring um, or, or flagging content. But I think in general, I think that that would be a good thing, right? Because that's a big complaint that I see from people that are, you know, censored or fact-checked or whatever is they're like, why did you fact-check this? Like, th- I'm just reporting on what president Biden said or something like that. So why does this get a fact check? So I think the sentiment is great. I think it would be nice if government didn't have to jump in and do that, but that is maybe a little bit naive of me to, to wish for that and, and think that it would just happen, you know, altruistically on its own. I will say, I think, you know, this came out just last month or so is that um, Jen Psaki from the white house said that the white house was working with Facebook to flag problematic posts that spread disinformation. That to me is like already setting a bad precedent for government involvement regarding tech companies and and speech on the internet, because it just goes, it goes right back to, you know, the very point of, okay, well, but how, how are you being honest and neutral in determining what is disinformation? Is it things that are blatantly lies or is it things that ideologically don't fit with your agenda? You know, and an example of that would be like we talked about in the COVID episodes, the Wuhan lab leak. Like there were posts, Facebook was actively taking down posts that were promoting the idea that the COVID virus could have come from Wuhan lab and give it, you know, a little bit of time and come, turns out that's not a crazy idea. Actually, it, it is a potential possibility. And suddenly like they have to reverse course on that. So I think that that's the very quicksand environment that you're dealing with when you start talking about what to remove that is disinformation because it can change so fast and especially when you get the government involved that is changing you know four years to four years for you know policy objectives and things like that i just think it's ripe for abuse uh and that's that's why i don't think that it should be done i think the idea of the white house or you know congress you know a, a agency having that kind of regulatory insight is not good for me. Yeah. I mean, that makes sense to me in terms of like your ideology. (laughs) I think that's consistent. Something that I thought was really interesting is I listened to a podcast on radio lab about, it was, it was sort of general on like content, the development of content moderation on Facebook. And one of the things it talked about was how developing these policies on how to moderate content is kind of like how we develop law. And I think that's true. And something we kind of forget is like, when we're talking about free speech, we're also looking at, you know, a hundred years worth of jurisprudence on, on how we decided like what's okay and what's not in the public sphere. And that's basically what these tech companies are doing right now. And when you're developing an area of law and it's like funny to call it law, but it kind of is it's their internal policies, it's like their law on how they're doing things. There are actually going to be issues, right? And you, you do have to correct them. I think the important thing 
is to keep them accountable to ensure that they are correcting them. I'm not, I don't think it's hopeless to think that they could get better at it. I don't know that I think they're going to succeed entirely, but I think it could get better. The only thing I would wonder too, Erin, is again, going back to the public square, if it's a law in my town about how I can behave and what I can say in my town, and now Twitter's the town and I don't get to vote on those laws and I don't get a say in those laws, how do we feel about that? Oh, Dallas hates it. (laughs) (laughs) You're not anti-free speech though, for, for saying there should be some like regulations on it. Again, this is like any of our other rights. Like you said, Cassie, you can't go like screaming the the class example scream fire in a building but like that's actually really taken out of context in terms of the case so just like in general don't say that because it's not helpful um but yeah there's things that you can't say right uh just in general I think that your point is good in terms of like we don't have the same power to influence like what the internal policies are of these companies because we don't vote but at the same time like I said before it's in their interests to like deal with their user base. They need to be able to attract users and things like that. That's not going to work if they are like doing things that everybody hates. I think your point about not being able to vote on the rights or on the rules rather is, is excellent. I think that's very true. But also I think your point, Aaron, about like, this is the tech companies starting to go through and create their case law for this is, is absolutely true as well. They're not going to have a perfect record and that's unfortunate and that you know we're the first generation of people to consume the internet we're going to have to suffer through their mistakes and so yeah i I just think it it is a good thing to try to keep in mind and it doesn't excuse them for when they do mess up but we should hold them accountable but they are going to make mistakes and i i was coming across something about the john peter zanger trial which is kind of referred to or looked at as like one of the first instances of like free speech law in the United States um, way back in 1733, you know, even before we were a nation. And so I feel like we're living through those days of the internet and, you know, hopefully it just gets better from here. Yeah. Agreed. I hope so. I um, got a notice in 2017, my information was some of the information that got uh, given to Cambridge Analytica. So that wasn't great. I'm glad that they had to like pay for it at least as a a fine or something but yeah I think you're right this was a super interesting one there was a lot I didn't know a lot I didn't know and that like I said before every time one of you spoke I was nodding my head like yeah that's not fair or yeah that's a really good point that's you know so and so's responsibility I think it'll be exciting when we talk about privacy too yes agreed privacy is so important such a big issue right now Do you think similar to this conversation? Do you think we'll land in similar spots or? No. Oh, I think, I think we're going to land a lot more overlap when we talk about privacy. I I think we'll be like not identical, but probably nearly identical in a privacy discussion. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yep. Well, I am super grateful to everybody for listening. And if you can't tell, our dog is letting us know as our, as our new producer that time is just about up. So Thank you guys so much for listening. And I just want to encourage you, if you have found this at all interesting, helpful, entertaining in any way, we would love it if you would follow along with us on Instagram, Twitter, we're on YouTube now. And um, if you haven't already, we already have 25 of our favorite people have left us 
a five-star review. We would love, love, love if those of you who have listened and enjoyed would go ahead and do the same. So hopefully we can talk to you again next week and reach out with any and all questions. I think that's it from us. I, I had a great time today. This was super fun. This one has actually been in the works for a couple of weeks. So I hope everybody enjoyed it. Everybody got to listen and let us know your feedback uh, online. Send us a comment, a DM on Instagram, whatever. We'd love to hear your thoughts. Uh, and if you'd like us to dive in anywhere else, let us know. We'll do it. All right. We're looking forward to seeing you next time. Thanks for joining. Thank you for listening to the Reframers Pod. We hope you enjoyed the episode. If you did, please rate and review us five stars and subscribe so you can always catch our latest episode. You can also find us on YouTube, Instagram, and Twitter at Reframers Pod. And you can email us at reframerspod at gmail.com. 